0: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations. A lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, so you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am your um acrostic youth group poem oh that's cool j-e-s-u-s what what could those letters possibly mean <laughs> and i'm at vernico uh i'm working the front desk at the creation museum <laughs> um that's great uh i was gonna hold off on this but since you mentioned it i do just want to flag that i have a, a creation museum fly uh a creation museum themed um activity for us later in a
0: minute (laughs) that's great i love
1: activities (laughs) i've got a good one uh i went on vacation and now my brain can only think of activities so that's what (laughs) you're gonna get on this podcast from now on
0: yeah we got coloring pages we got crossword puzzles we that's it those are the only activities that you can do
1: (laughs) no don't worry we're proliferating more uh before we get there um we decided that we should probably remind people that you should take the time if you haven't already to uh rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts in particular but uh elsewhere if you have access to it because people find our podcast if it gets reviewed and the more it gets reviewed more frequently the more people can find it and we used to say this all the time and then we stopped saying it <laughs> for no no good reason or by no intention uh but i think we're going to bring back the reading reviews on the podcast down the line so if you've never given us a five-star review or uh, if you want to give us some more you can invent some fake identities and do it yourself
0: um yeah there there was actually a recent review i'm not going to read it but someone said they appreciated how real we were and uh, it's true we are real we're real people
1: (laughs) Uh, not a program (laughs) Uh, all right. <clears throat> well, speaking of real people, Matt, um, like I said, I've been on vacation out in the real world, away from the Internet, unplugged, uh, just back to nature at Universal Studios. Orlando, Florida <laughs> in particular. Um, I did go there with my uh, very loving and kind uh, partner, Emily, and a bunch of my friends. And I did I did all the rides and I couldn't stop thinking about how fun it was and how fun all these rides were. And I thought, if only there was a place where I could do this as a Christian. Um, If only there was a a place where I could really get in touch with my Lord and Savior while I'm listening to Jimmy Fallon race through New York City. Um, And I didn't find that exactly, but I found the next best thing, which is the Creation Museum, of course. And it just inspired a game that I want to introduce to you, Matt. And I feel like there could probably only be one edition of this game. But who knows? Uh, we'll see. I'm going to try to mine it as long as I can. But I think the first one I've spent a, a pretty good deal of my afternoon on it more than I should have. And uh, I'm really pleased to show it to you. Okay, today. that sounds
0: good. I'm excited to play this game. I love activities. Like I've already said, have you ever been in the Creation Museum?
1: I've never been. I want to go, but uh, after doing some research, I've learned that there are even more activities being planned at the Croatia Museum in a few years, so I'm going to hold off.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've never been there either. Have no, you been there? No, never. Oh, okay. Um, I have some friends who've been, and I'm living vicariously through them. Um, I know that they have a big Noah's Ark down there, too. It's, it they sounds do. great. The main it event. sounds like a great time. Uh, the, bad, the bad part is that you probably have to pay a lot to them, and I don't feel good about that, but...
1: Uh... Yeah, I mean, you could pray your way in, I think. Okay, I could do that. If you stood outside of that place and you prayed loudly for enough people to hear, and you said, you know, you asked Jesus in front of everybody (laughs) to let you into that place. They'd have to, right? (laughs) They would have to. Yeah, they would have
0: to. If they didn't, you could march around seven times, blow a trumpet, and it would all fall apart.
1: (laughs) That's right, that's right. Um, all right, well, uh, let me introduce you to this game. I hope that you don't know too much about it, having uh, gone vicariously through it with your friends, but I suppose we'll find out. Um, the name of the game is Answers in Answers in Genesis. Okay. Uh, and as you probably know, the Creation Museum is uh, funded by Answers in Genesis, um, a Christian institution dedicated to spreading uh, creationism and combating the evils of evolution. And the way this game works is there are a number of attractions at the Creation Museum. Everybody knows about that big arc, and that's why everybody goes. But there are lots of, uh, let's say, B-level attractions. (laughs) And so what I've done here is there are three descriptions of attractions you might find at the Creation Museum. Two of them are real. Mm -hmm. And I've taken the copy directly from the website, and one of them is fake. And I've written it myself. Uh, using a uh, a mixture of my own stupid brain and uh, some other text I found at Answers in Genesis. And it's up to you, Matt, to find out which one is this the This is going to be so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to play Answers in Answers in Genesis? <laughs> yeah, I really am. <laughs> All right, here it goes. The first attraction I have for you is called simply Dragon Legends. And it goes a little something like this. Once upon a time, a young, beautiful princess was trapped in a castle tower. Suddenly, she was in grave danger when a fire-breathing dragon flew toward her tower window, but a knight in shining armor came to her rescue, narrowly avoiding a fiery death as he slayed the dragon just as it swooped down. Everyone is familiar with these classic dragon stories, but is there any truth to the supposed fairy tales and legends like Beowulf, Chinese dragons, or Nessie? Before the word dinosaur, which refers only to land-dwelling creatures, was invented in the 1800s, the word dragon was used. Exhibits at the Creation Museum explain how that means all dinosaurs are dragons, but not all dragons are dinosaurs. Dragons are depicted both today and in ancient times in artwork, cave paintings, carvings, and architecture, look an awful lot like dinosaurs, or marine reptiles or pterosaurs. Could it be that the artists behind these depictions were drawing a real-life animal they'd seen with their own eyes? Encounter dragon legends from history and across the globe at the Creation Museum. Consult the scriptures and decide for yourself whether dragons are myth, fairy tale, legend, or truth. There you have it. That's the first one. Okay, that's very upsetting. How are you feeling so far? So far, I'm upset. I'm mad. I'm angry. Mm -hmm. I want to see this so bad, though. (laughs) Good, good um that's the headspace i want you to be in all right here is number two so we've got dragon legends on the board number two is called battle over the nephilim and here it goes (laughs) seemingly out of nowhere the expression giants on the earth crops up in genesis 6 4 who were these giants where did they come from interpreters have debated their identity for nearly two thousand years A quick reading might lead you to interpret the passage one way, but a closer look reveals many other possibilities which need to be considered if you want to make sure your interpretation is consistent with the rest of scripture. We can't just accept our first impression or what one commentator says, but we need to prayerfully examine all the biblical evidence for ourselves. Christians will likely continue to disagree on this topic until the Lord returns, so we need to show grace to other believers agreeing to disagree. In the battle over the Nephilim, visitors will be presented with evidence for the three most popular views so you can make up your mind for yourself. Are the Nephilim the descendants of the lineage of Seth, powerful and mighty rulers in the ancient world? Could they be a group of severely fallen and brutal people? Or could they even be fallen angels who married human women and produced a race of giants, the last straw before God flooded the earth? The exhibit will guide you through the biblical text. With maps, archaeology, artist depictions, and even scale models that bring the Bible to life, at the Creation Museum you can weigh the evidence yourself and learn how to respect the beliefs of other Christians on this tricky topic.
0: The uh, the respect other people's beliefs part is really throwing me here. That makes me feel like it could it's definitely not the right one. <laughs>
1: But see, it's other Christian beliefs is the key. Okay,
0: that's a good point. It's not just anyone's beliefs. It's just Christian's beliefs. You can respect other Christian beliefs. There's a lot of room for interpretation Yeah, you can can respect other Christian beliefs as long as it's only about the Nephilim.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, All right, and I'm going to give you the third one, and I'm going to have you weigh them all Mm -hmm. uh, at the end. The third one is called Dr. Crawley's Insectorium, (laughs) and it goes (laughs) something like this. In our world-class collection of insects from around the world, you will be transferred into a world of staggering beauty, stunning acrobatic feats, ceaseless variety, and spectacular weirdness. In Dr. Crawley's Insectorium, you'll learn interesting facts. For example, did you know that not all insects are bugs, but all bugs are insects? The exhibit features Dr. Arthur Pod, a fictional animatronic person who answers visitors' questions about these incredibly designed insects. Do you want to learn about the purpose of insects, the explosive Bombardier beetle, or whether there's a reason for the beauty of butterflies? Let the doctor know and he'll teach you about your topic of choice. Dr. Jeff Crawley is a real creation scientist who generously donated his insect collection to the Creation Museum in 2013. The collection represents a lifetime of collecting by Dr. Crawley who began his interest in these creatures during a merit badge project as a kid. Wherever his travels took him, he would venture out and add to his collection. The goal of every collector, Dr. Crawley says, should be to share his collection with others. All right, Matt. So you've got Dragon Legends, Battle Over the Nephilim, and Dr. Crawley's Insectorium. Which one is false? So
0: First of all, let me say that you've done a really good job sort of crafting um, a red herring in here because they all sound pretty plausible to be in the Creation Museum. (laughs) But you great. I'm really glad to hear you that. have made one fatal mistake. That I think gives it away. Oh no! <laughs> so the the one that, the the false one the false the false gospel about the Creation Museum is is the second one about the Nephilim because there's no way in hell that Ken Ham Kenneth Ham is gonna is gonna teach kids about the Book of Enoch. That's just not gonna happen. He doesn't that can. <laughs> it's not even possible that he would do that. Right? Like that
1: must be the fake one. All right, here's the thing. <laughs> it is a fake one. You, you are right. However, the wildest part about it is almost all the copy on this uh, thing that I took is directly taken from the Answers in Genesis website, uh, barring just a few things to suggest that you can visit such a such an exhibit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's too bad, though. It'd be a badass exhibit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do want to see those big fallen angels. I want um, those giants. The, he, I got to see them. he's. Here's two crazy things about the real ones, however. First of all is the repetition of rhetoric. uh, Namely, um, in Dragon Legends, uh, you learn that not all dinosaurs are dragons, uh, but all, or sorry, excuse me. Uh, All dinosaurs are dragons, but not all dragons are dinosaurs. And Uh, (laughs) and you learn a similar fact (laughs) in Dr. Crawley's Insectorium, that not all insects are bugs, but all bugs are insects.
0: (laughs) The curators at the Creation Museum, they took one logic class in college and they learned about necessity and insufficiency. (laughs) And this is it. They've done it. Now they're really cashing in on college (laughs) education from Liberty University. (laughs)
1: That's right, that's right. Yeah. Uh listen, you know that thing about squares and triangles? All right. Think about that but dragons and dinosaurs. <laughs> uh bugs and
0: insects. All right. That was great. Uh that was a fantastic <laughs> game. I've <laughs> I've been um, I've been amused. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, we shouldn't have answered it. Uh, we should have let everyone write in to think to say what their what they thought it
1: was. Shit. That's true. It's such an easy Google though.
0: Oh uh, good point. We got we would have had a lot of cheaters. Um that's okay.
1: Yeah, so the other wild thing about this is there is a real-life exhibit with an animatronic Dr. Arthur Pod who does answer your questions about these incredibly designed insects. Dr. Arthur Pod is very
0: funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr.
1: Arthur Pod, the horrible answers in Genesis robot, is very funny. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. <laughs> I don't
1: want to go. I don't want to go see the magic bugs. <laughs> I mean, I do very. I really want to go. There are so many uh, so many things on the horizon. Okay, I have to ask you not to look at it again because <laughs> perhaps I might, if there's enough material, I may bring the segment back in the future for uh, coming attractions because there are some in the works, um, but I need to uh, you know, really do my due diligence to come up with a, a good red herring.
0: Okay, so you're asking me to not look at the Creation Museum website.
1: That's right. I know it's very difficult, but I am asking you to do that. It's my homepage. I have to go change it right now. (laughs) Uh, So there you have it. Answers in answers in Genesis. You've won. You're one for one.
0: I need to get a trophy for myself.
1: Yep. Uh, Ken Ham will be proud. Um, All right. (laughs) This podcast, despite what you may think so far, is not about these bad games. Uh, Or these bad museums. Uh, In fact, it's, as we said at the beginning, about Christianity and leftist politics. um, And specifically, we've been talking about poetry for the last several episodes. Uh, As you can see, I'm still on vacation, brain. I can't even uh, (laughs) string words together in a coherent sentence yet. Um, But we're going to do it. By the end of this uh, episode, we'll sound like the intelligent, um, helpful people that we normally are. Uh, So to give you a little roundup of where we've been, and also to give myself a little roundup, we decided to do some episodes on poetry and arc on poetry. Uh, This year is the year of poetry. And to do that, we began talking about Ernesto Cardenal, a Nicaraguan poet and revolutionary uh, Catholic priest, a really important guy in the Sandinista Revolution and the government who wrote all kinds of interesting poetry and even came up with a school of thought about uh, poetry called Exteriorismo. Uh, Very neat stuff. And then we talked to some real-life poets who are writing poems today, uh, Tegan, Steele Fisher, and Dominic Knowles, who both also graciously read some poems for us in the episode. Uh, Really great stuff. Um, Two episodes, one for each of them. You should go back and listen to them. Uh, But as we were thinking about how to cap this off, we decided to follow a lead that Tegan uh, gave to us when um, they mentioned being into Dorothy Zuella who appears in Tegan's book, and so we thought we would go back to a Zoela book that we've actually mentioned on this podcast in the past, and we did an anti-war episode not too long ago. Uh, The book is called Of War and Love. It's kind of like a hodgepodge of writing, I guess, (laughs) like letters and sermons and essays and poetry, and we decided to focus on the poems in particular. Uh, so hopefully this is a good way to round out some of the stuff that we've learned and talk through some actual work by a Christian leftist poet. Um, Matt, uh, anything you want to say up front, maybe about uh, the book or anything that really stood out, stood out to you in it?
0: Yeah, for sure. It is my favorite type of book in that it is lacking a lot of organization Um you know, you can be reading, uh, you can be reading, uh, you know, an essay and then the next page without any sort of like break or explanation, it's just <laughs> a poem. And that's really cool. I like that. It's also good because all the essays are uh, relatively short. So if you're like me and you're living on dad time, which means you have about 15 minute increments be- before you need to like stop your child from uh, destroying your house. Uh, it's a great book to read because you just pick it up, you put it down. doesn't even matter. So it's great. Uh, you should go check it out. It's definitely worth it. Uh, I don't know, acquiring and reading.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's a really nice book because it does have that like um, brevity to it. Uh, But it's also like Zoella has such a great writing style in her poetry, but also in her prose. And it just reads along really uh, quickly, nicely. Lots of good turns of phrase that you can tweet out, (laughs) think about for a long time. Uh, And those are the kind of books you want, the books that build your brand.
0: Yeah, so the book has two big parts to it. Uh, The first part focuses on themes of rebellion and organizing resistance against militarism. Uh, Militarism was Dorothy Zuela's kind of big thing, at least in the very beginning of this book. Um, A lot of her work in this book is responding to NATO and the uh, proliferation of arms uh, during the Cold War. So that's kind of the backdrop of it. And then the second section, though, focuses more on Latin America and then a lot of the same themes about rebellion and resistance and that kind of thing. But in Latin American context, rather than European. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is that good, Dean?
1: Yeah, I think so. I guess we could say a little bit more too about uh, Dorothy Zuella. Um So, yeah, she's a German theologian. She's really into um, uh, activism, but in a, a decidedly leftist horizon. But she's also a fascinating theologian because she worked on um, kind of like the trauma of fascism in Germany and what it meant for Christians to participate in fascism and what that meant for her own faith. Um, So she really investigated that. But she was also a participant in anti-imperialist forms of socialism and the New Left at the time in particular. Uh, She was a member of Christians for Socialism both in Germany and in the U.S. She taught at a union theological seminary for a while in New York um she was really into like the chilean solidarity movement especially she was a huge supporter of the sandinistas in nicaragua um anyway she has like a very clear um alignment with the left she like visited vietnam after the war was over and was really impressed by the the communist project there and she held people like ho chi minh in really high regard so anyway she's definitely a theologian of the left um and in that sense, too, it's it's neat to be able to read her poems that draw all those themes out like uh, the other folks we've been reading. Oh, dang, I totally forgot to mention earlier, the one person that it's fitting in some ways that I forgot to mention in this poetry rec was Joe Wallace, <laughs> the Canadian poet that everyone has forgotten. <laughs> you know, when I was,
0: um, I was listening back to some of the episodes and uh, in every episode, I basically have to re-explain who Joe Wallace is. <laughs> and, and every time it's like, I don't know, man, he's just like this weird guy. <laughs> I
1: don't know what to tell you about him. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I just, it came to mind because I was thinking about what I love about uh, Dorothy Wales poems is that they're actually pretty simple. Um, and they, I mean, they're profound, but they, you know, you can really read them and get them. Um, and for some reason that brought Joe Wallace to mind, I guess, with his goofy, (laughs) goofy rhyme schemes. Um, anyway, we should, uh, it's enough, enough by way of introduction. We should just dive into some of these poems here. Uh, so there are lots of poems in the book, but we've curated a few of our favorites. Um, we'll read some of the more, I don't know, like things of topical interest later, but I thought to start, Matt, we could talk through this uh, figure that she kind of invents and uses throughout the book, uh, a figure of the ogre, this kind of poetic image, Um, this big, uh, horrible Shrek that she invents that stands in for uh, militarism, Um, and the ogre shows up in several different poems. We won't read all of them, but we'll read a few of them. Um, and I think maybe the best way to get into it would actually just to be able to hear the, the first poem where the ogre shows up, and then we can kind of talk through it. Um, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think so. The first poem that Zuela writes uh, with the ogre is at the very beginning of her book, uh, and it's called In the House of the Man-Eating Ogre. Born in the era of gas, I find myself in the house of the ogre. His wife, comely and plump, took me in, looked after me, gave me plenty to eat, and hid me from him when he came home. Life isn't so bad in the house of the ogre. During the day, he goes about the land, stationing missiles, ruining highways, and training young men for deployment at home or abroad. For the distant enemy, the ogre displays his famous first strike. To those in his own land who still talk back, even after heavy doses of radiation, he has dogs and gas, of course. I myself am free to come and go as I please during the day in the house of the ogre. I joke with his wife and don't fret about anything. Only in the evening he comes home and sniffs around and looks for me. Do I tremble in fear in my little bomb-proof box? Then I dream about the dismembered bodies, about starving yellowish children. Then I hate my father and mother for bringing me into this world, at this time, in this country. Someday, it's never been any different. The ogre will eat us. That's the way it's always been, up to now.
1: Yikes. What a big one.
0: Uh, yikes! Is right. Uh, so this is the the first like um the first time we see the ogre showing up in her work, at least as far as this book goes. But the ogre is a character that's going to come back again and again. And I mean, it's not. Uh, it is. It is a simple. Po- uh, a simple poem. A simple metaphor. You kind of get the idea, though, right? Like the ogre is is militarism. It's imperialism. It's the thing that um, yeah. I mean, oppresses people around the world through force. Um. You live in a country where it happens and, you know, you think that you're free to go about the about your your day. You can come and go as you please. You have a good time. Even maybe you like it. It's comfortable. But at the same time, at the end of the day, you can't help but thinking that the whole reason that you're able to live here in any kind of comfort is because it's like, you know, um, oppressing and killing people other places in the world. So that's the ogre.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really neat poem because there's so many unsettling feelings in it, I think. I mean, there's the ethical complicity, like you mentioned, of being uh, feeling safe in a place that is maintained by violence. Um, But it's almost like she's sort of held captive in that place. Like, free to come and go, she pleases, except when the ogre comes home, then it's bad news, uh, and the ogre will eventually eat everybody in the home anyway. Uh, I think that is really interesting. This is kind of like... Horror that pervades the whole poem. Um, so it's imperialism abroad for sure, but also uh, if you get a little too upset inside the house or you make a noise or something, then uh, the ogre will find you. Um, so there's a, a policing that happens within the house as well. I think that's a really neat uh, metaphor.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we're not going to like talk about them, I think, any more than this, maybe. Um, In some of the other essays kind of early on and sermons early on, she talks a lot about the sort of trap of security that comes alongside, um, you know, like militarism abroad. Basically, the idea is militarism abroad, you know, um, increases the you know, security of the country's borders or something like that. And that security is supposed to make us all feel better. But in fact, it doesn't. Um, It makes us more paranoid and so on. Um, But you see that kind of here, too, right? The ogre is doing this thing out in the world, but then it comes back and still... Uh, inflicts its uh, presence and violence upon the people of the country. So um, I don't know. That's just like a a theme that kind of reoccurs throughout her work.
1: Yeah, it's neat that you mentioned to you that there's all kinds of uh, themes that come up in the prose around this poem. Um, I think that is helpful to me because one thing that we asked uh, Tegan and Dominic both was, you know, what's important about a poem Or what can you do with a poem that you can't do in an essay or, you know, what's specific to it? And they had some really great answers. Uh, What I appreciate about this um, book is that you can kind of see that demonstrated or performed. Mm -hmm. uh, Because the poems are often saying the same thing that's being said in a sermon or in an essay. But uh, the, you know, the image that gets conjured up is a very different kind of image than her just saying something like, look imperialism is bad you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh there's something a little more um it like sits with you or makes you feel it a bit differently
0: yeah for sure i mean just personifying you know militarism uh (laughs) into the ogre and making it you know the type of character that it is it does sit with you in a different way um you know it puts a face to something that is faceless and that's really kind of helpful um when you're thinking about it
1: yeah uh well I want to talk more about this ogre. Um, so I'll read the next one that we have here uh, because it's also a great segue because the title is simply and what does the ogre look like? So we've got the ogre um, who lives in this house and goes around pointing bombs uh, everywhere and is eventually going to eat anybody inside. Um, but I love that the next poem really kind of contextualizes mm-hmm. how this all looks. So she says this. <clears throat> in a photograph taken at the Rhymatol factory, I count five animate beings and seven artillery shells. The animate beings are dressed in suits, white shirts, and ties, which leads me to think that they are men. Their hair ranges from thick to thinning to sparse, which leads me to think that they are in their mid-thirties to mid-fifties. All but one are exposing their upper front teeth, which leads me to think that they have just made a profitable deal. All of them hold on to the weapons they have produced with one hand or both self-confidently proud or buddy-like, which leads me to think that they love weapons. Their self-confidently proud or buddy-like stances lead me to think, in addition, that they would like to have colossal pricks. All the representatives of the weapons firm shown here, with the exception of the unsmiling one whose half-open mouth gives him an idiotic look, strike me as dynamically precise and decisive, which leads me to think that they will determine my German fate, as has happened twice before in this country, unless we strip them of power. Uh, I like that one a lot. It's a good, a very good poem Yeah, for sure uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, But again, just like a really kind of photographic uh, image that is literally based on her looking at a photograph.
0: (laughs) That's true. She's just describing uh, something that she sees, but uh, describing something that she sees within the context of the, the ogre. And it kind of, um, I mean, it's, it's fun because it, it adds a level of banality to what the ogre is, right? It's not like, uh, you know, when it comes to, like, evil and really terrible things in the world, um, you expect them to be dramatic and scary. But in the case of militarism and imperialism, it really is just like she's describing it, right? It's a bunch of, like do feel looking white guys um selling bombs <laughs> to one another.
1: Yeah, exactly. Here's a great thing. Um so Rheinmetall, I had to look it up because I don't know what that is. It's a German word. I'm probably pronouncing it very badly, but it they're a, as you might have guessed, a defense contractor. Um but my first Google hit uh, for it, it says uh Rheinmetall AG, Rheinmetall Group, Integrated Technology Group. Uh, it says it's an environmentally friendly mobility threat appropriate security technology. Holy shit! <laughs> and uh, the the idea that it's environmentally friendly is so horrifying yeah. and uh, really kind of brings home, I think, what Zoela is after here.
0: Yeah, like completely stupid, well meaning, but at the same time, like actually awful.
1: Yeah, right. And it's like <laughs> environmentally friendly unless you have to happen to be a human being in an environment that imperialism doesn't like.
0: Yeah, totally. It's completely stupid. Uh, So that's what the (laughs) ogre looks like. (laughs) That's what the ogre looks like. Okay, so the ogre shows up again later in the book um, in another poem called And on the Other Side of the Border. And on the other side of the border, you realize that, don't you, lives an ogre who is much worse, totally undemocratic. He's growing fat on the possessions and taxes, on the bodies and time and life, on the spirit and soul and research of the poor who are his subjects unrestrained by a free democratic social order you must never forget that he is growing unchecked and according to our latest information his waist is one inch larger than that of our ogre though his live weight is one quarter pound less and that right on our border so that we have no choice but to take appropriate measures and to end the emaciation of our native ogre we have no choice but to catch up by building him up The ogre here is, is recognizing that there's not just one ogre, but there's many, there's at least two, right? This is like, (laughs) um, this is, you know, recognizing that there are other powers in the world, um, that might also be ogres. Um, and that, uh, in light of those ogres, you have to just make yours bigger and feed it more things that ogres eat, which according to Shrek, I think is onions, but I'm not exactly sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely not parfaits. Um, Yeah, I I mean, uh, it's a great poem, I think, because also in the prose that surrounds it, she talks more about the proliferation of arms, and uh, she makes a a couple of comments throughout the book about how she tells a story about how, um, you know, security is premised on this threat or this fear, but that fear is often uh, not even real. And one example she gives is uh, NATO's uh, push for mil- militarizing Europe. And she says, you know, she, she's critical of the Soviet Union's participation in the arms buildup as well, although she seems pretty sympathetic to why they feel the need to do it. And uh, there's a moment where she says um, by... Uh, certain estimations, the Soviet Union was basically always about five years behind in terms of military technologies. Hmm. Uh, but it didn't really matter. Um, that's not very good messaging if you want to, like, get the populace on your side. Yeah. Uh, so there was always this kind of image of the Soviet Union as, you know, we have to keep up the arms race so that we can beat them um, and the idea here that, uh, you always have to remember that there's, uh, an ogre on the other side who's even worse than ours. Like our ogre might be bad, but at least we have democracy. Yeah. Um, and you know, it would be worse if their ogre defeated ours. I think that's a really kind of neat way of dramatizing what's at stake in the cold war.
0: Yeah. The, uh, the words, you know, ours is, ours is restrained by, uh, by democracy is a really, Right. (laughs) I don't know. A really funny thing. Um, It's so restrained by democracy, but we can't help it from getting bigger. (laughs) Like, (laughs) okay.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, it's cool too to see that um, to get this poem after reading the very first poem, like she kind of gives it away right in the beginning, that even if you live in a, a, you know, the democratic house of the ogre, um, the ogre is still prowling around and eventually is definitely going to eat. Yeah. Um so here you have the voice of ideology later but it's like you're already prepared to see that it's ideological which I think is a neat device. Yeah definitely. The ogre's bad. Huh? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um well uh later in the book um there so there's a bunch more uh ogre poems but I want to read just one last one. I mean people probably get the idea but uh this is my favorite one dealing with the ogre because it's uh I don't know, not as direct, I guess. (laughs) Maybe that's it, Um, but I'll read it quick, and we can just chat about how these poems kind of work together. So the title of this one is called I Travel Around to Speak About God. I travel around to speak about God and begin, as a matter of course, with the ogre and ask my listeners not to serve him any longer, not to go on sacrificing their labor and their children to him, their short lives. Softly, I speak the language of remembrance of a life without fear of being eaten alive and touch once more with my hands the great old words. I speak of the women in the Soviet Union as sisters, and when the hungry are fed, I say peace, and I don't apologize for, nothing, for having nothing to say about the ogres in other lands. Because after all, I was invited to speak about God. Uh, I love this poem so much because I just feel that it resonates with my own life experience as a person who's a Christian and a communist. Um, the first thing that anybody always asks you is, you know, what about, um, what about the the bad stuff that happens in communist countries? Uh, and the thing that you want to talk about, obviously, is uh, something that should presuppose that you don't like bad things that happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's always trying to sort of hold you back from, Really getting to the meat of a question which is you know what should we do about our own ogres or something like that um, and uh, you know what should we say about God, uh, which isn't necessarily um, making sure that God is on the side of your nation or something mm-hmm. so i don't know something in the poem just really speaks to my own kind of experience
0: it's an interesting way to kind of combat what, what was happening in in the last one right in the on the other side of the border um, is you know you're so mm-hmm. preoccupied with the the other um ogre that you you know end up justifying making yours bigger or whatever but here she's saying
1: i don't know i don't even talk about that one (laughs) right (laughs) yeah it's good um it's good and it's also good uh communist praxis too right that you shouldn't always go around um making the case uh, against yourself (laughs) before other people do Um, you know, there's a time and a place to be very critical and it's important for communists to cultivate a critical consciousness about their own position for sure. But, uh, it's also important not to feel like you're always, um, on the defense when what you're actually trying to do is build a different kind of society. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, you know, and in, in those kind of conversations too, um, you know, people, liberals and conservatives alike, you know, they want you to, um, you know, ap- apolog- apologize for all the bad things that have- communists have ever done, but they would never do the same for <laughs> themselves, right? They never do their- the same for capitalists. So I don't know. Yeah, Gotta... yeah.
1: They're busy serving their own. Ogre. Right,
0: exactly. So, anyways, I-, I think there's like an invitation here to think about the world in a little bit of a different way, um, less adversarially, um, and less in terms of security and strength, and more in terms of, um, I don't know, com comradely. Or something, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) getting away from thinking about the ogres, I guess it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting way to think about militarism, that's for sure. It's definitely something that would be really hard to write about uh, if you were just writing like an expository essay or something, but in um, the format of poetry, it works and it is interesting and it kind of sticks with you.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And it also testifies to this kind of weird myth-making power that poetry has, or uh, even Zoelos' case, almost revealing the Cold War as this myth-making power. So using the image of the ogre is so fascinating because it's this uh, you know big, yucky monster. And she has all this prose around it, explaining imperialism is bad, and the arms proliferation is bad, and you can read all the reasons why it's bad. But here you kind of get hit with this image of this really... Scary monster who's sort of consuming everything uh and I think there's something about that that just drives the point home more, and like I said, also reveals the mythical nature of the Cold War that it's not just a uh a race of technology um of weapons technology, but it's also this attempt to like build a world in which you feel that there are monsters on the other side of the border or something.
0: yeah, that's good. well, we have time for maybe just like two more poems and then. Mm-hmm. OK, cool. Um, all right. Well, here's uh, a poem that Zuela wrote that's not about ogres. I mean, it is in a sort of different way, but <laughs> but here you go. OK, um, this one, uh, this one hit a little close just to, to use some church speak. It hit, hit close to home, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It really uh, uh,
1: convicted your heart. That's right.
0: It did convict my heart. <laughs> um, yeah. This, this one's called Public Relations. Um, And in a a former life, when I taught uh, classes on public relations, I thought this one was really good. Um, Okay, (laughs) so public relations. For the year 1980, the Pentagon earmarked twenty eight million dollars for public relations. Given the magnitude of the task, that is a minuscule sum. Two hundred million people live in the United States. Each one of them must be kept from thinking. Each one of them must learn not to use his or her eyes and to suppress the old instincts. Giving a glass of water to someone dying of thirst. Giving a parcel of land to someone starving to death still comes natural to many. Even the need to use one's intelligence is hard to eradicate. Given the magnitude of the task, $28 million for brainwashing is amazingly little. Um, I love that. <laughs> I love that one so much. Um, because, um, well, okay, I mean, public relations is... Uh, put nicely, an industry that's supposed to adjust the public's interest to your interests, <laughs> but put negatively, <laughs> it is propaganda. <laughs> um, right. yeah, I mean, I don't know, but this is really funny because it's um, you know, what what she's saying is that you know people are smart, they're they're gonna still. There, it's hard to to suppress the impulses uh you know to not not to tend to the people who really need tending to but at the same time um the the Pentagon is able to do it for an amazingly little amount of money um and i think that's very sad and funny and biting all at the same time um I love it because again it's like um it's expressing something that is extremely critical and uh, a pretty good analysis of the way that a lot of public relations and, and media and how they work. Um, but it's doing it in, you know, like 15 lines or something rather than a 20 page essay, or even like a two page essay, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that we need to be reading when Raytheon is sponsoring the girl scouts or wh- whatever. Uh, it's a good note.
1: Yeah, surely the budget has increased <laughs> Yeah, totally by 2020. Um, Yeah, I think what's really fascinating, though, is, like, you're right, uh, it's, so the troubling side of the poem is that even with that amazingly little amount of money, the Pentagon does shape entire, um, an entire population to uh, support doing very bad things. But there's a kind of weird revolutionary optimism in here, too, that uh, she says, you know, people still kind of naturally react by if you, if you met like a thirsty person you would give them a glass of water probably, or, you know, if you, uh, if someone just broke it down in kind of simple terms, like you would help somebody out um, just off your kind of base uh, instinct, which might be too optimistic in some respects, but it's neat. I think that she also says uh, the, the amount of money is amazingly little to think that you could just sort of um, erase this instinctual desire to help your neighbor, um with you know twenty eight million dollars, which is like less than a dollar per person right. in the u s
0: yeah, maybe that's one way of reading it, I suppose I guess I was thinking think about it more in terms of like I don't know where you face with someone who is thirsty, you totally do this, but um you know th- right they're kept at a distance through uh you know a manufactured mediated reality. you don't do those things,
1: yeah, that's right, yeah, well, poetry it really makes um, you think what can you yeah. say it really makes you think. <laughs> <laughs> that's poetry um well i've got one more uh that's poetry poem for you um <laughs> a pretty good one uh <laughs> uh this is my favorite one in the whole book uh it is called um the title is really great it's called when i was asked for the 502nd time what i thought about Violets." <laughs> uh again just very relatable so here is what she says <clears throat> My pacifist friends proceeded with extreme violence at an innocent General Electric plant, located in a peace-loving town named King of Prussia, when they used an instrument of violence, the old-fashioned hammer, to render some harmless instruments of security, namely atomic missiles, useless. To justify their irresponsible action, they quoted a man from the 8th century B.C., whose followers they appeared to be and who was apparently possessed by the crazy idea of beating swords into plowshares on behalf of a higher being. And in the interest of lower beings, people too lazy to work in fringe groups, this violent coalition of the very high and the very low, of what they call God and what they call the poor, represents for us in the neutral middle a genuine threat to security. Uh, I love this because it poetizes something that we say all the time on this podcast about violence which is basically that um it's like a really annoying conversation to have but if you're gonna have it uh you can have it in a way that also sees supposedly nonviolent actions as profoundly violent with respect to certain social orders um certain ways of life and uh again i think it just kind of Shows the power of poetry to express that in a way that if you read an essay about it, people might feel a little uh, guarded or ready to find the the chink in the armor or something like that. Um, but here she's encouraging you to feel playful with a language, which is exactly how you should feel, I think, with a word like violence, since it just gets deployed in so many bizarre ideological conversations that... You kind of can't help but be a bit playful with it, even though it's uh, immensely serious topic. Yeah,
0: the what, what I really appreciate about this—I mean, a lot of things—but um, that uh, uh, framing these people in King of Prussia <laughs> as followers of some person from the eighth century BC, <laughs> it really explicates how funny the situation is, and um, it, it explicates like how much like the. The religious rhetoric would weigh on that judgment and how much that would distract i think people from the conversation about violence like you know if she would have mentioned right from the start like well they're christians and this is jesus and all this kind of stuff right like that would that would already like uh set a bunch of people on edge a lot of like uh red flags would go up for people reading this but but doing it this other way is is funny because it makes it seem that much more like obscure and strange and, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're just kind of caught off guard by, like, whatever this weird group of people are.
1: Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's just neat to kind of play with the uh, violence, nonviolence piece of it with that in mind, too, right? That they're being guided to uh, act in this way, this this violent, pacifist way, <laughs> by living into some strange reality that just doesn't yeah. kind of match up Um yeah, faced with the title of the poem, too, you know, when I was asked for the 502nd time what I thought about violence, uh, I think the story that she tells is so interesting because it's, first of all, a response to um, a question she's been asked over and over, and it comes with a, a pretty clear sense of impatience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that, too. That's like, OK, you want to talk about violence? Let me tell you this story about a bunch of people who uh, broke in to destroy some like innocent pieces of weaponry. <laughs> uh, it's like a really neat way of just kind of um, cutting the cutting the crap when it comes to questions about violence. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. That's poetry. Uh, it makes you think it. it's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> that's literally all we are capable of saying about it.
1: <laughs> uh well I think that's probably a great segue to move into the uh thing that we always do at the end of these arcs which is namely to do our final sort of vegetails moment uh what we have learned by doing all of these episodes on theme In
0: case that doesn't make any sense to you at the end of every vegetails episode they would do a wrap up and sing a song and tell you what what you learned so that's what we're doing <laughs> Lives All right, so Dean, what did you learn? Are you the tomato or the cucumber, would you say, in this relationship?
1: That's a really good question. I feel this is a question that we can't answer for ourselves, but can only be answered by the I listeners. I think
0: that's true. Um, yeah, well, uh, go ahead and call in and vote for which one of us
1: is Larry Boy. <laughs> and which one of us is that? That Ro- stick in the mud tomato bob. Robert Tomato. <laughs> Robert Tomato. <laughs> Robert Tomato and Lawrence the Cucumber. That's uh really great. That's what they're gonna be called in the
0: adult swim uh spin off that they've <laughs> that they've hired us specifically to, to run. <laughs> uh I can't make I can't wait to make that ass
1: character <laughs> uh, Meatwad but he's a tomato. <laughs> um, yeah what have I learned in my vegetable journey through poetry um, I mean I feel I definitely learned a lot about poetry as a medium in particular and that was more the most interesting thing as a person who is like theory brained which may be a, a defect in some <laughs> ways uh, but I was just really interested in figuring out you know like what is Cardinal doing when he writes a poem a certain way Um, what's exteriorismo about, uh, what's he trying to accomplish, and why, Um, which is kind of hard for me to get because I don't really know the constellation of figures or traditions that he's kind of playing with, but I think I have a better understanding now. Um, I think those were the most interesting moments when I was, uh, when we were kind of talking through things with Tegan and Dominic because I was trying to reflect on that, and even looking at Joe Wallace's, like, bizarre methodology is like, you know, I want to know what why people do that and not something else um so i feel i've got a little more clarity on all of that and uh who knows maybe one day i'll try to write a poem and now i'll at least have some more things to think about instead of just uh (laughs) putting together a bunch of weird words that i hope sound uh a little less weird Uh, but not too less weird they should still be a little bit weird. (laughs) yeah that's right uh what about you matt
0: Okay. I don't know anything about poetry still. No, just I'm sorry. That's wrong.
1: We've done several <laughs> podcast
0: episodes about poetry. I know everything about poetry. Um, and, <laughs> you know, at least uh, like four and a half hours worth of information
1: about poetry. It, and
0: It's four and a half hours more than I knew before this. So that's pretty good. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, on that point though, I think that uh, at least to me, poetry seems astoundingly pedagogical. Like, it's a really good mm-hmm. avenue for teaching people things, and I didn't think I didn't realize that, I guess. <laughs> My preconception was the poetry <laughs> was about your inside feelings, and i I think it is about that still in a really profound way but but more than that, it ends up being about like how do you convince and convict someone about those inside feelings, or you know, not your 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 exterior feelings, even. Uh, or, you know, some other topic, who knows? But, like, uh, how do you get a point across to somebody in only a handful of lines? And maybe that's all wrong. Maybe if you're a person that knows about poetry, you're listening to this like, this guy is stupid. And, like, listen, I am. <laughs> but <laughs> I think there's something to it. I think there's something to it where where poetry ends up, um, I don't know, it can say something to you that's deeply profound that will definitely take you a long time to, like, figure out. Um, but it teaches you something that you didn't know before.
1: Yeah, I like that because it's also it might even be that poetry is sometimes pedagogical in spite of itself, right? That the whole death of the author thing, like a poet may not know what they're communicating to a reader, uh, but a reader is still going to learn something by struggling through the text. Yeah, yeah, Um, that's really totally.
0: I mean, even just like the the ogre metaphor that's running out through so many of Zuela's uh, poems, you know, I think that is a really interesting pedagogical moment, right? Because it's telling you, a person who lives in the Imperial Corps or whatever, about like how extremely complicated that is. Um, And like, why do you do these things? Like, why do you think that you need a stronger military? Why are you like, you know, all crazy about the troops and spending more money on a military budget? Right. And like, she's trying to help us understand why we are that way through this, like, you know, mythological moment that tells us something about ourselves. And I think that's good.
1: Yeah, I feel too, coupled with that pedagogical piece, there's also, this might just be because we read, we've been reading uh, poems by lefty types, but there's a sort of activating moment in poetry that I don't really get from reading, you know, Capital or something. (laughs) Like uh, reading about uh, how coats um, get made and how much linen costs doesn't really make me want to like go out and get in the streets or something. (laughs) But uh, reading, (laughs) reading Ernesto Cardinal say that like, Seeing the FSln letters on a mountainside is like a revelation from God. It makes me be like, "Whoa!" <laughs> it makes me want to do something, and uh, that is a pretty unique power of poetry. I mean, I've read some some potent essays in my life, but uh, there's something about reading uh, a poem, especially like a, a poem that you can read that's just a few pages long, even, and you get to the end of it and you're like, "Now I've got it." Uh, there's something about that that just feels kind of energizing and activating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it reminds me of uh, Julia Kristeva, who I mentioned briefly somewhere else on this podcast. Um, she wrote a book called Revolution in Poetic Language, and she has this, this really bizarre and interesting argument in it where she says that uh, poetry is kind of like the moment where language kind of breaks down and it's like the excess of, of our energies or the excess of our drives that sort of can't quite be finally contained in language. And she ties that together with revolutionary politics because revolution is also this moment of excess where uh, the social order that currently exists just can't really contain the drives that it's trying to organize. And so uh, those drives spill out into a, a revolutionary moment. And to tie language and politics together in that way, I think, has always kind of made me interested in poetry, but not really capable of seeing how it pans out. Um, and she has some specific kind of poems and poetry in mind, but I think it works with these too, right? The, there's this uh like when you read a poem by like Tegan Steele Fisher uh, about um trying to work out you know these different voices, uh the the apostate voice, the ideological voice, et cetera, there is this kind of moment of like excess or plenitude in theology where you're like, oh, yeah, um, regular Christian writing just doesn't really capture this feeling or something. Uh, but there's a lot of drives getting communicated in that kind of language that maybe gets you in touch with your own drives or your own kind of, uh, uh, revolutionary moments that you didn't really think were possible. And I think that's a, a unique power of poetry that I want to think more about.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cause you kind of just can, I don't know, toss away the rules for a minute and just let it all come out or put it in a really particular way that you couldn't, if you, uh, if you, you know, followed the rules of, um, you know, writing or whatever, more explicitly, right? That sort of like that format of being short and like, uh, the absence of rules, I think makes for a really interesting moment.
1: Yeah. And I mean, uh, some of the poems that we read by Tegan and Dominic are uh, interesting to me because they function as these really like destructive machines with respect to certain forms of Christianity or certain forms of politics uh and that's like a wild thing you know they they really do something in the world um that again like you you can do with prose but it's really hard it's harder to do um by reading you know a 50 page like essay yeah definitely than reading a a poem on a page yeah
0: yeah i think that's true i mean there's also like a lot more force behind them as well um mm-hmm. i mean i was just thinking about some of Dominic's poems particularly you know like uh, <laughs> like setting fire to business schools and throwing your boss in a furnace stuff there's like <laughs> there are uh things you can say in uh in a poetic format that you can't in other spaces and i think for the better right
1: yeah <laughs> yeah that's right yeah and it's good that there's a, a a medium where you can let those drives loose a little bit and uh just see where they go so there you have it poetry um it's cool it makes you think um and if you're a psychoanalyst you can think about drives when you read them we should have read that kasteva
0: stuff i don't know why we didn't do that
1: yeah i don't know i think i was just sick of reading theory books and then i went on vacation and now i can't think at all so maybe one day fair enough thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard over this whole arc you should go support the poets that we read uh specifically Tegan and Dominic Uh, you definitely ought to support them and find out where they're publishing and uh, Tegan has a book that you can buy Dominic uh works with the Proteon magazine that you can read and and support there as well Uh, so we encourage you to do that you can also support us on patreon.com slash themagnificast Uh, We really value everybody's financial support. Um, It's a huge help in making this podcast uh, worth it. We do a lot of work for it, and we're really grateful for people being into it. Um, the music as church always is by Moria Armstrong the and the outro is so by the alive. Illogical Came Spoon the See you next week There
0: will be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There will swim with all creation Never get tired Never bored Don't worry someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord
1: Jackson Keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, when well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind it cold nights, but my might mind.